Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. I went and got water and then forgot to bring it. Hey, good morning. And you know what? I don't care if you say good morning loud or soft. I decided I'm done with that. I'm done with caring about how loud you say, how loud you say it. Um, hey, would you, uh, I know Jeremy just prayed, and, uh, but I'd really like to pray again. Just quick, if you wouldn't mind joining me uh, in prayer. God, thank you for the morning and for your people gathered uh, and for your people scattered. Um, and uh, thank you that you love your church, you love your bride. Um, and uh, you are consistently at work shaping us and molding us. You're doing it when we're paying attention and you're doing it when we're not paying attention. And you're doing it when, when we are faithful and obedient and you're doing it when we're in rebellion. So um, this is your church. Uh, and I pray that you would continue to be at work in it. I pray that you would take these words uh, that, if honest confession, I struggled to, to get out. Um, but do something. Um, uh, because my temptation always, is always to think that somehow this is contingent on me. Uh, and so we'll all confess together that it is not. And how dare we, how dare I think in that, well, in that way. So make yourself known today in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Um, In 2005, David Foster Wallace, uh, who I started looking at his life, fascinating, lots of interesting things to come out of of, of a fairly dark life, but uh, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio, and uh, it almost instantaneously became a famous speech. Uh, And he started his speech with this story, He said, two fish, I'm going to edit it a little bit for content, Uh, but he said, two fish were swimming uh, along, and they were passed by an older fish, and the older fish swam past and uh, nods to to them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish began to swim on for a bit, and finally one of them turned to the other and said, what the heck is water? All right. Hopefully that'll make sense the longer we go here. We've been in a brief series on suffering uh, just at the beginning of the year. Happy New Year, right? How to suffer, how to suffer well. Um, The Christian life is not about not suffering. The Christian life, our hope in Jesus is not about escaping or avoiding suffering. And so how do we do that well? How do we practice that? How do we walk in that faithfully and obedient? And so the first week, we looked at God. Uh, how do we walk with God in pain and suffering? And we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faithfulness to God. And they said, God can do these things. He can save us. He can, he can rescue us from the furnace. But, but even if he doesn't, that doesn't negate the fact that he is God. That will not propel us to bow down to human kings and, and um, to other things. Uh, and um, they surrendered uh, and submitted their own 
earthly agenda along with any other authority uh, to, to God's authority and to God's agenda. And then last week, we looked at the presence of God as we weep. So we did walking and then weeping. Uh, we looked at the Psalms and David's crying out to God and complaining to God. And we looked at Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and through lamentations as he saw the destruction of the temple. Um, and that when we cry out to God and when we take our hurts to God or even our complaints before God, that we can experience his presence. God doesn't say, hey, when you have something wrong, like if you're a parent here, how many times you said, hey, if you got something wrong, go tell somebody else, right? God is not like that. God's like, if, you, if, you, if you're hurting, if you're complaining, come to me. Bring it to me. Let's reason together. That's what he says. He, he invites us to come to him and experience his presence. And then this week, my, my catchy little title was Walking, Weeping, and Waiting. And I'm just going to tell you, I ripped it off from Tim Keller, and I'm going to rip an outline this morning off from Tim Keller, but I'm telling you I'm ripping it off from Tim Keller, okay? Uh, I'm also ripping off Paul. Um, so, uh, uh, but this week was supposed to be walking, uh, let's see, walking, weeping, and waiting. Uh, and so this week was supposed to be waiting, which is going to look an awful lot like walking, <laughs> just so you know. Um, but how do we... How, what, what do we do now? What, do we, what are we supposed to do? In, in some ways, this is kind of stepping back and saying, um, what does it even mean to be a Christian? Surely it's not just I trust Jesus so I go to heaven when I die. Hopefully that's a while from now. And so in the meantime, there's got to be more than that. We have to step back and even think, what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? What does it mean to live this life submitted to Jesus. It can't just be moral. It can't just be, well, now I do right things and I used to do wrong things. There's got to be something more to this. In other words, what, what is water? What are we swimming in? What does this even look like to walk in this way? What does it mean to be a Christian? And if it means something different to be a Christian than it does to be a follower of Jesus, then we need to redefine that word Christian. So to help us understand what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus and evaluate questions that sometimes we, we, we really fail to ask, um, the older fish that will happen upon us as we swim this morning is going to be the Apostle Paul. Uh, and my hope is that what he'll help us to see, especially with this thought of ongoing suffering and pain, uh, and joy and gladness in every aspect of life, my hope is that Paul will swim by us and help us understand this is water. This is what it means to walk in the newness of this water, or I guess swim. All right? Uh, there's a lot of sufferers in, uh, in Scripture. Jesus suffered. The image of Jesus. Paul, uh, uh, Job uh, suffered as well, a righteous man uh, who suffered. But Paul, a lot of times when we think of Paul, I mean, at least me, I think kind of a hard, gruff dude that is pretty aggressive in his writing, but he also reveals he's pretty weak in person. So I don't even know what to think about Paul. But very rarely do I think of Paul and the intensity of the suffering that Paul endured. Do you, do you know that Paul suffered a whole lot? A lot. And he suffered a whole lot like, he, he didn't have to, um, but he suffered 
pretty constantly, pretty consistently because of his encounter with Jesus. And what's even harder is the hands that, that, of the people that Paul suffered were probably once his friends, probably once his co-laborers, probably his family. Um, they, many of them opposed Paul. Uh, and it was because Paul had encountered the resurrected Jesus and all of a sudden everything that he had held on to, everything that he had learned, got turned upside down. Paul was actually persecuting the church of Jesus, wanting to eliminate it because they were a disdain to the Jewish faith. And all of a sudden he encountered the, uh, the resurrected Jesus and everything changed. And then what he was doing to others the people that he was doing those alongside are now trying to do that to him. Paul, in this, um, some of his opponents, a lot of his opponents said, well, you're suffering, so you can't be doing it right. If you were really, if you really had faith in God, you wouldn't be suffering. Anybody, like even internally, feel that battle? And Paul actually says, my suffering is actually because of Christ. Um, this is not evidence that I'm wrong. Uh, it is actually the evidence that, that I'm right. Paul recounts the hope of the resurrection in the midst of suffering to the, in his second letter to the Corinthian church. He says this. Uh, he starts off in, in the first chapter and he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul suffered physically, for sure, for the sake of the gospel. Uh, his first missionary journey, which would eventually become the letter to the Galatians, it records that he's actually beaten and left for dead, if not dead. It's not real clear. And then the next day they drag him out of the city and he's back alive again and keeps going. Um, uh, but upon his confession of Christ as Lord, he is consistently suffering. He is hunted after by people he used to count as friends. Uh, and so uh, he gives us a little bit more. Well, okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean he suffered? Well, 2 Corinthians 11, he tells us what it means. The servants of Christ who had come to Corinth had said, well, um, had basically tried to minimize Paul's message and said that he's not as eloquent and you need to trust us because we're more eloquent. He suffers, that's not bad. Uh, uh, that you should disqualify his message. He comes in in 2 Corinthians 11 and says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Uh, and, and he acknowledges, he said, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. It's with rocks, not with plants. Three times I was shipwrecked, night and day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, 
There is daily pressure. This one kills me. Apart from all of that, then there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? How in the world did Paul do it? Why did he do it? The physical stuff? You know, the sticks and stones can break my bones thing, but the words will destroy me. The anxiety of the churches to feel the betrayal from friends. And, and this is beyond just anxiety and depression. Paul says, have you ever felt, I mean, have you ever felt despair to the point of death? There's, there's an old saying, there's a cliche. Uh, sometimes you don't, um, let me remember that. You don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Ever heard that? Um, there's a lot of different reasons why sayings become cliche. Sometimes those reasons are because they're true. Paul is experiencing despair and suffering to the point of death, finding out in deep and profound ways and over and over again, much to somehow his joy that it is Christ who raises the dead. Everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. I've shared the J-curve before uh, with you, but I'll share it again. We, if, if life is here, most of us, we want to go from life to resurrection, right? From life to heaven. That's the goal. That's the American dream. Let me have it here, and then one day I'll, I'll just slide past. Oh, we were sitting with a pastor one time, and, and he was like, what, am I just going to die in my old age in my sleep, or am I going to be like uh, out proclaiming the name of Jesus and getting shot in the streets? And we're like, oh, the second one, or the first? And he's like, no, the second one. And we're like, oh, right, yeah. It made sense to me. Anyway, we don't go from life to resurrection. That, by definition, that can't happen. The only way to get here is life to death and then resurrection. Resurrection, by definition, follows death. To become a follower of Jesus has to be the death of me, the death of my kingdom. To submit, to walk in the resurrection. Have you, ever, um, have you ever had a moment in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever had a moment or a time when you have felt what it was to walk in the resurrection? Have you experienced that? Like, you have nothing. If, if, if Jesus is not there, you, you have nothing. Um, I've shared before how uh, I got a call one night late to come and walk through this house uh, that the people believed were, the, the, the girl said she saw the uh, stuff moving and she swore up and down that there was a ghost, there was some kind of spirit in there, and they called me at 10.30 to come and walk through this house, which is kind of out in the middle of nowhere and very, very creepy. And so I called another elder and we went over there. And the other elder said, uh, what are we going to do? Do you know what you're doing? And I said, no. I have no idea, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this house, we're going to read psalms, we're going to pray out loud, we're going to taunt demons, and if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Now, you can say, well, what's your position on all that? I don't know, but we're in the house, and I'm like, if something shows, I'm going to freak, but my confidence is in the resurrection of Jesus right now. 
I've got nothing else. Now, if you ask me about finances and monthly bills and uh, how all that's going to get done, and do I walk in the resurrection there, that's a lot harder. But when everything else is stripped away, I'm like, all right, here we go. Supposedly, this is the water that we swim in as a follower of Jesus. Supposedly, this, this presence of the resurrection is ours. If we've submitted our life to him. But if you're like me, you have a tendency to forget that. This is not about personal empowerment. It's not about being your best self. It's not about YOLO. It's not about uh, becoming the best me I can be. It's about this peace that passes every human understanding. And for the follower of Jesus, this is water. This is the resurrection. This is what we're given in our new birth. And how easy and often I fail to see it or recognize it, let alone delight in it. To walk in this, we have to unpack a lot of of assumptions, um, as well as the practice of putting on this new self. And as we can see, it doesn't mean that we never suffer again. In fact, Paul suffered because of it. Uh, But it, it may mean that death faces us often, and not physical, but emotional, spiritual, the death of our plans, the death of our agenda, for sure. Um, but it's Christ who raises the dead. Paul writes out, in every letter that Paul writes, he writes to every church, this is what this looks like. This is how you practice this. And so for the sake of this morning, we're going to look at it in Colossians 3. Uh, And it doesn't go with the order of the chapter, but again, I ripped off Tim Keller for his outline, so it goes with that order, but I am using a different Pauline passage, all right? This is what he says. We're going to break this down. Uh, This is how Paul gives us to, to walk in the newness of the resurrection. Think, thank, and love. These are, our, these are our practices, all right? So Colossians 3, I'll start with the first part of the chapter, for, uh, 1 through 11. If, if then, that's not to create doubt, that's to say since, if you've been raised with Christ, then, if, uh, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So, put to death what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. This is why the wrath of God is coming. In these things you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, saying that you've put off the old self and its practices, and have put on the new and resurrected self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And here, there's not Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. So first, think. Paul tells the Colossian church, set your mind on things that are above. He tells the Philippian church, whatever is true, right, noble, pure, think about those things. David in Psalm 1 says that he meditates, blessed is a man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. So why, why do we do that? Well, um, because the old you, 
and the old me, that kingdom is dead, and so we need to set our minds on the new kingdom of God that's being established. Our life is hidden with Christ. And Martin, by the way, uh, and Eric quoted Martin Luther King earlier, if you have not read Strength to Love, which is his, a collection of his sermons, I would highly encourage it. Uh, uh, there's a couple of quotes from, from him this morning. Well, he says, one day we'll, we will learn that the heart can never be totally right if the head is totally wrong. And so we have to learn how to think. We think differently about our behavior, what we do and what we don't do, and why we do or don't do what we do or don't do. Everybody got that? It involves thinking differently about other people, undoing some of our natural prejudices and our natural fears. And I'm just going to tell you, if I'm honest, it would probably do Christians a whole lot of good to stop being consumed with people who might be against us. In the New Testament, that was overt. People were against Christians. Do you know why Nero hated Christians? He didn't. Nero loved himself and needed to throw people off the stink of his own political junk. So Christians were a new, up-and-coming, easy target. And so he, he's, he put the dogs on them and said, look at those people. That's the problem. We, we Nero hated everybody but himself. Uh, we, could, we could do with stop being so consumed with, with who's against us and other people's agendas. We should expect it, and then if it doesn't happen, be grateful. Um, it means we think differently about God. God is not a pagan God. That is, that we have to do all these acts to get in his good side, and then we go to war against the other pagan gods to win. God is not cosmically disappointed with us, sitting up there looking down, going, oh my goodness, how long are these people going to keep messing up? And as a measure of freedom, if you've read, God's people have been messing up since Genesis 12, since he started them. All right, we've got a long track record, and we're keeping it up. Um, it means we think differently about God, that, uh, and, and the grand story of scripture and doctrine affect how we think about God. Setting our minds above, I think, is both to step back and look at the grand story that we talk about every week, and think about the God who redeems and rescues. It's also stepping in and looking at the doctrine that if it doesn't apply to your soul and your heart, then, then do away with it. Don't just learn for academic, but let it transform you in what Christ has done, in how God moves, and what that means. And it's in the discipline and practice of study that we learn how to think differently as we see this revealed. Studying scripture not only that, but having scripture then dictate how we see the world around us, how we see ourselves, how we look at other people, where we find value and worth and meaning. It can give us various convictions about how we see the world, what is good, how do we even define good. I will let you know as a litmus test, if studying the God of the universe leads you to a position of pride or arrogance, you are most certainly doing it wrong. Okay? To study the God of the universe is to realize that you are not him. And so it ought to produce in us a great humility. Uh, going back to Wallace's uh, speech, the, his uh, commencement speech, he has this beautiful nugget. He says, here's one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. 
Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world, as you experience it, is there in front of you, or behind you, or left of you, or right of you. It's on your TV, or your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. When we encounter the God of the universe, when we sit and read the cosmic story that has been going on since the beginning of time, the immediate truth that we are confronted with that is glorious is the fact that you and I are not, in fact, the center of the universe. That all of time and existence haven't, hasn't existed to give us me. But God has always been and his cosmic story goes on, and we could be caught up into it. Something we learn in scripture is, in a way to think is to not think too highly of ourselves. Uh, that we are not, uh, to think Christianly should destroy pride and not enable it. That we are not the center of the universe, and yet, and yet, what we also see in here uh, is that you are most certainly loved by the God of the universe, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are created. And so when we center our mind on these things, when we think about these things and dwell on these things, it changes us. We talked about our emotions last week, and one of the things that I said is, was, can can you, you know, we get iffy talking about emotions, and we've gone overboard for sure, because uh, one thing we can't do in our world is somehow centrist. Oh, uh, let it be, dear Lord. Even everybody here is like spread out to the sides. Um, but, but in that question, well, can we trust our emotions? No, we can't. But here's the thing, we can't trust our own thoughts either. We need to submit them here. So we dwell on these. We have a tendency to believe that we're the center of the world and those, that our thoughts are right or correct. The other side of that is we might be governed by shame and think that our thoughts are always wrong. That we can't possibly believe that we are somehow worthy of love. And to study and to confront and be confronted with the God of the universe suggests first that we are not right and that, and, uh, that we are not... the. Uh, in ourselves God in the center of the universe, but also we discover that God never says in his word, I'll love you once you get it all together. He says, you are worthy of my love because I'm the one that created you and designed you. He is the one that made us. Here's, so here's a promise, uh, promise. Here's a problem that I face. Uh, especially lately. Um, week after week, everything that's confronting us in our world. Um, I totally identify with Paul, feeling the anxiety of the church and being responsible and having a voice. Uh, 
and confronted then with these truths, trying to prepare a sermon every week and go, okay, these are, these are true, these are right, these are good, and I should have them down. And I want to assure you, like maybe nothing you've ever been assured of, I do not have them down at all. I want them. I read and I'm like, ah, walking in light of the resurrection. Ah, that sounds nice. (laughs) This week, fixing my mind on the author and perfecter of my faith, and I just want to tell you, I have, I have not, I've, I've been terrible at this lately. Um, I have not slowed down. And what I've, I've done the, the practices. I've been reading my Bible. I've been journaling. I've been doing all that stuff, but it just, I continue, continue to fill my mind with lesser things. But it was in this encounter and having to write this out and having to work through this that I, yesterday morning, I was like, I need to walk. I need to get out. I don't need to think about these things less the reality of the resurrection, I don't need to encounter them less. I don't need to encounter the craziness of our world less. I need to actually think about these things more. I need to see my own hypocrisy more and be confronted there with, it is Jesus who raises the dead. Here again, Martin Luther King says, one of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession, between doing and saying, Uh, Between doing and saying, a persistent schizophrenia leaves so many of us tragically divided against ourselves. On the one hand, we proudly profess certain sublime and noble uh, principles, but on the other hand, we sadly practice the very antithesis of these principles. How often our lives are characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practices of paganism. We proclaim our devotion to democracy, but sadly practice the very opposite of that democratic creed. We talk passionately about peace, and at the same time, we assiduously prepare for war. We make our fervent pleas for for the high road of justice, and then we tread unflinchingly the low road of injustice. This strange dichotomy, this agonizing gulf between the ought and the is represents the tragic theme of man's earthly pilgrimage. When those come into conflict, when we're able to see and think not only about what Christ has done, but my participation in it, where my deeds and my actions fall apart, that is when we are confronted with our own sinfulness and have the option there to lay that down in death and find it raised from the dead in the newness of life. That we need to both simply think about what it means to be image bearers of God, love mercy, do justly, shoot, I messed it up. Micah 6 8. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. All right, I was missing. Yeah. We need to be simple in our thought about that. See how simple that was? Um, and then simultaneously, we also need to learn to think in greater depth about the reality of the world and what Christ has done and building uh, and, and how that takes shape. Our, our, here's how that plays out when we think. Um, rightly in our encounter with scripture, our um, uh, slogan, it's not our slogan, our mission statement at Refuge, building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. 
Here's what, our, here's what our mission statement is not. It is not winning the world for Jesus. Do you know why it's not winning the world for Jesus? Because, because that, that's not what this is. Do you know who won the world for Jesus? Jesus. When he walked out of the grave, he won. Our lives, working this out, bearing this to the other, we are bearing testimony to that. We are sharing that happened and it's changing me. That's what our job is. It is not to win the world to our view. It is to bear witness that Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, That's our call. To set our minds on heavenly things is to learn how to think Christianly. Not not religiously, necessarily, but what is Christ-like. And that our hope would rest deeply and firmly on Christ who raises the dead. Okay, I'm going to combine the next two, and I promise they're shorter and I'll get you out before the playoffs start, if you're an NFL fan. You guys remember the NFL? They still want your money. All right. Uh, okay. The next two, thanking and loving. Um, we'll put them together in the, last, uh, the, the, the next several verses in Colossians chapter 3. Paul has said, this is what we put off, this is what we put to death. And then in, starting in verse 12, put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Be thankful. Um, practice Gratitude. Here's the thing for me on this one. Um, for me, being thankful requires practice. I, I don't do it well. And, and if, I, if I'm honest, mostly what that requires then is, is actually remembering to be grateful. All through the Hebrew scripture, what you see is God telling people when he does something, he's like, set up an altar here. Uh, rename this land. Rename this valley. Name your kid this. (laughs) Um, Remember what I have done. Why? Because your temptation is going to be to forget and want more. And here's the bad and good news. They did this all throughout the Hebrew scripture and the people of God still forgot. Um, Even this week, my wife, uh, God bless her, uh, as I lament often my frustrations, um, if you think it's bad here, you should try being married to me. Um, and this week, and she did it, she does it so well, um, lamenting my frustrations does not take practice for me. I'm really good at that one. I've honed that skill well. Um, I don't know if that's a spiritual gift, uh, but I do it well. But this week, my, in, in my complaining and my lamenting, my wife, and she's really good at it, um, 
She stopped me in a loving, gracious way because she knows how to do this well. She yeah-butted me. Um, and, uh, but she didn't, she didn't just like cut me off. She said, honey, I hear what you're saying. And, and you're right. And I know that there are some things that are, frustra- that are frustrating. But, but do you remember um, a year ago, my wife just out of nowhere lost her job and then God provided a job that then once everything hit, she could stay home and, and, and keep her job. She said, you remember a year ago when God provided this job just before, before everything shut down? And she would say other things. Do you, do you see how God has put this in our path? Do you see God's hand in this? Have you asked God to help you with that? That one. Here's the thing. If we never ask God, we'll never thank him for his provision. If we ask God and then fail to remember and think back, then we'll never thank him for his provision. Another great story from Wallace's commencement speech. He says, there are these two guys getting together in a bar in the remote Alaskan wilderness, and one of the guys is religious and the other is an atheist. And the two are arguing about the existence of God, which that usually goes really well, with the special intensity that comes after about the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, It's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. I mean, just last month, I got caught caught away from the camp in the terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing. It was about 50 below outside, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow, and I cried out, Oh, God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now, back in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist, all puzzled, and says, Well, then you must believe now. After all, here you are, alive. And the atheist just rolled his eyes and said, no, man, all that was was a couple Eskimos happened to come by, come wandering by and show me the way back to camp. If we, if we don't ask God, we will never be grateful for his provision. If we ask God and then forget and fail to see We will never be grateful for his provision. So remember, practice gratitude. In your daily prayer, make time to see what God has provided and be grateful. Don't take God's hand for granted. That can become a dangerous and presumptive place to be. And and, and a little warning for all of us, the more we tend to accumulate, the more we tend to presume, and the more we tend to want more, and the less we tend to be grateful. See the hand of God in every single provision. And then finally, bind all of this together in love. And to bind it all together in love, Paul says you have to put it on. Put on love. Um, several years ago, we went to visit some friends of ours, and we went with them to this megachurch. And it was a youth pastor preaching that week. It was a holiday weekend. Um, and uh, I did not like his sermon, uh, which is terrible. That's it's terrible. But you guys don't know him. Um, I don't even know him. And, uh, and so... He, he, he preached on, um, I don't remember what the title of his sermon was, but it was on love. And he says, three things you got to love. You got to love your spouse. And then he gave practical ways on how he loves his spouse. And you got to love your kids. And then he gave practical ways on how he loves his kids. And you got to love God. And he gave practical ways on how he loved God. Um, aside from the major presumption that every Christian is supposed to be married and have kids, uh, which 
is false, even as we marinate on Paul's teaching, who Paul had neither of those things. Uh, The practice of the follower of Jesus is not to just make a list of all the things that we're supposed to love and put God on that list. I, when I first heard this statement I'm about to say, I heard it contributed to C.S. Lewis. I have not even been able to find the statement, let alone it contributed to C.S. Lewis online, but we're going to presume for the sake of this sermon that it's C.S. Lewis who said this, and we're just going to keep the rumor going. When he said, when I love God most, I love my wife best. Take this and spread it out to everything else. When I love God most, I love my friends best because I don't need their approval. I'm not scared to say hard things to them, but yet I'm compelled to care and want for them deeply and encourage them sacrificially. When I love God most, I love my neighbor best because I'm willing to give up for them and not use them for me. And shoot, when I love God most, I love myself best. The disciplines and practices of love, that happens through study, seeing uh, what, how, how God has loved us, it, through gratitude, through serving, through hoping, through practicing and giving and receiving forgiveness. And that we would cultivate our highest love and our highest affection, namely that Christ has first loved us. So then if we want to, as Paul says, put on as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, that we would bear with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. To do that means we embrace what he first says there as God's chosen ones, that you are holy and beloved by the God of the universe, that we've been reconciled to God himself through the blood of Jesus. And when we get caught up into this love, shapes us and changes us. It doesn't shame us. It doesn't leave us defensive or trying harder, but really kind of basking and beholding. It calls us to trust and follow and be changed and leave things behind and put on greater things. And in light of that, we learn how to love well other people, friends, neighbors, even our enemy. So, for those who have put their trust in the resurrection of Jesus... This is water. This is, this is what we swim in and walk in and bask in and is available to us at all times. The overwhelming, overcoming peace of the resurrected Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, that even though we may face emotional, spiritual, and one day physical death, it is Christ who raises the dead. And if our hope is in Christ, then we walk in the newness of life, that this is water. So we'll sum it up here. What do we do now that we know who we are? Think, thank, and love. Think not according to earthly powers or earthly kingdoms, but setting our mind on what Christ has done. Thanking that we've been raised from the dead and every single breath we have is from the giver of life and do everything we have with gratitude and loving what Christ has poured his affection on, that Christ has poured his affection on you, that you are worthy of the love of God because of Christ. And if God is for you 
if God is for his people, what could it possibly matter who might be against us? Let's pray. Jesus, here again, take a bunch of rambling thoughts, drive them home into our heart, help us to be a people who are being changed, that we couldn't possibly receive the grace and love of Jesus and look so harshly with judgment on others. But that the testimony of a people being made new is that we look like a forgiven people, free to love graciously and joyfully and generously and liberally and and giving our lives for the sake of others, even ones that might be against us, as Paul modeled so well, that, that we may face death, but it is Christ who raises the dead. Teach us how to do this. Thank you for being patient with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.